Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio. The words, the pen is mightier than the sword, were first written in 1839 by an English novelist and playwright. It's an interesting concept, the power of words to defend, to inspire, or to wound especially now in a time in which technology enables us to fire off texts, shoot each other emails, and attack one another on social media or online posts. It's something I thought of often as I set out to write this podcast. The Vaughn family had already experienced written outrage in many forms after Chris's arrest, trial, and verdict. As we neared the release of our first episode, potential response weighed heavily on everyone involved. The first article about this podcast to go live was the local patch website in Shanahan, where the tragedy occurred, and with it came reader comments like these. Jim, from Joliet, lock me in his cell with him. He'll remember who did it real quick. Wally, also from Joliet, unless the Vaughn family is saying Chris is guilty, they really need to shut up. And Phil, from Wheaton, Illinois, references another man convicted of killing his family in his post. Let's lock him up with Chris Watts, and they can swap stories of how they each murdered their children and wives while we slowly burn down the place. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Illinois. After Chris Vaughn's wife and three children were found dead, 
Speculation as to Chris's guilt started immediately on message boards and reader comments beneath news articles. Here's Gail's sister, Rose. Passing judgment on people, hiding behind a screen and putting words and texts on the internet without knowing truths, not knowing the whole story, only seeing parts that have been manufactured in a lot of different areas. That's a hard one. There's a lot. And it spilled over in person on a deeply personal level. When this all took place, even though I don't live anywhere near Missouri, but this is where our original family started, I had to put my children in protectiveness at their school. I had two middle schoolers, and I had to go and talk to the principal because there were parents that were just mean. I was stalked. I had uh, people in our driveway constantly. I had reporters. We have a long driveway, like a three-quarter of a mile driveway, and there were people parked everywhere. It was I called the police, but the police wouldn't do anything. After Chris's arrest, many viewed the extended Vaughn family as guilty, too, by relation. Gail Vaughn was particularly targeted as the woman who mothered the man accused of killing the mother of his three kids and his children. Some were even motivated enough to express their thoughts in calls or letters they mailed to her home. Oh, pretty much, how could you be the mother of a killer? Why did you even give him birth? There was a a gentleman that texted and said that In his opinion, Chris was guilty and he needed to be stripped and sent to Canada in the middle of the winter and see if he can survive there. And just a lot of why Chris was even here. Why are you defending your son? He did it. And we received that stuff, but there again, our lawyers told us not to speak to the public. So we We never even gave a comment to any media person at all. The letters started coming shortly after the tragedy. It seemed like it was about a week. The letters started coming after the funeral. I got a number of hate mail that just said vile things. I got a couple letters from religious people that wanted to save Chris's soul. Many of them were very, very hateful. Here's an excerpt from one that she's kept for 14 years. There was no return address. It has been typed. It was not signed. And it's dated June 26, 2007. Mr. and Mrs. Vaughn. As a resident of Oswego, Illinois... I am sickened at the news of the heartless, cruel act your son inflicted on his wife and beautiful children. Following the news story, from the moment it broke, I had no doubt in my mind of your son's guilt. His story made absolutely no sense from the very beginning. What kind of sick mind would put two bullets through each one of his children's bodies at such close range and then kill his wife. I can't even begin to imagine the scared thoughts running through those children's minds as this punk 
riddled their bodies with bullets. Matter of fact, Chris is such a coward, he couldn't even put a bullet through his own head, which is where it belongs. We are delighted in the fact that he was arrested. And now Kim and his precious children may rest in the comfort of God's peace. It would have been highly unfair for the souls of those murdered that Chris be given the opportunity to attend their burial. Congratulations to the law enforcement personnel who made his arrest early in the morning. We are now left with having to explain to our little children why the dad of Kim's three children killed them. The children in this community do not understand, and frankly, neither do the adults. Chris thought he was so cool that he could get away with this horrific crime. I look forward to the day he is found guilty for this. Only a cold-hearted, psychopathic mind would kill his children and wife, and I would be disgusted and ashamed of my son. May the souls of Kim, Abby, Sandy, and Blake rest in peace. Hell awaits those so cruel. Written things would also play heavily into the time Gail and Rose spent cleaning and clearing out the Vaughn family's Oswego home after the tragedy. In Chris's office, Rose discovered a written list on his desk. In his office, he had an amazing book collection that was right next to where he sat. And you could tell that he used them quite often because there were markers in them napkins, whatever, marking places. And the books were amazing to me because these are all my loves. David Thoreau, Walt Whitman, Emerson, Edgar Allan Poe. There were just amazing books that he had. And they weren't like they were on the top shelf. They were right next to his desk. And because we were cleaning everything out, they would take out any markers or names or anything like that. I took out a piece of paper that was in one of those. And It looked like it was newer than later, older. And it it struck me because the note was, I'm looking at my notes, it was a New Year's resolution list from Chris written in his hand. And what it said on it was he wrote about being a better reader, a better listener. Nothing on the list was selfish or one-sided. Everything he wrote was about being better to be better for others. And I think that speaks mountains with his demeanor. In Abigail's room, Gail would discover a journal with a single handwritten entry. It offers tender and revealing insight into a young girl's life and family. Later, when we would meet in person, Gail would share it with me. This is what Abby wrote. Read that. I mean, it's, it's touching. Today was Valentine's Day. My box won the contest on the best Valentine's box. That's how I got this notebook and all the other stuff. I like the stickers best. I got a lot of candy today. I'm going to try to save it. I want Sandy and Blake to be jealous because I have more candy than them. They're probably going to eat all of their candy in like two seconds. Sometimes Sandy saves hers too. Sometimes she eats it. Blake, well, he eats his in five seconds. And then he complains to mom that we have more candy than him. He can be whiny sometimes and Sandy can be bossy. I don't know why, but 
Pain is only a four letter word. Pain seems like it should be a bigger word. Everybody hates pain. So why is one big thing so darn stinking small? It seems like it should be a seven or eight letter word, doesn't it? I don't think I've ever written this far before, but I just don't write. But I know I figured out it is the only way to express my feelings without getting mad. I am an artist. I am cursed with the gift of art. Unfortunately, it came with a couple of extra things. Anger, frustration, no patience, and of course, a gazillion other things. I just picture the thing I'm drawing in my head and draw. Here comes the bad part. I always mess up, like make mistakes. Not just in drawing, but in other things too. I have to have everything perfect. I have a neatness problem. It's crazy, is it not? But think of all the great artists you know of. All of them went through a lot of anger and frustration that they made their mistakes, right? Well, that's how I am. I'm always angry. When I think it's going to be a good day and it's nice and sunny out, I always get angry because of people yelling or fighting. I don't get why I have to be like this. I am, I don't wanna be. I want to write more, to have more stuff to tell you, but I'm so tired. It's like when you're breathing and you want to breathe in all the way, but you just can't. And it's like part of your breath is lost in some other dimension where no one else but you have the key for. But the bad part is you lost the key, lost the key to your breath. I'm really tired now. I've written for like five pages so far, weird. I think mom might be in my room again. I'm really, really tired. I don't know why though. It seems like my eyelids are begging the top ones to come down together. Well, I think that's enough writing for now. Anyway, I have a headache, Abby. What's the date of that? It is the- February the 6th. February 14th, 2006. I mean, that's pretty profound for- That's, that's right, that's but right. also but the subject. The subject of, of pain. And, and the fighting and the hollering. Yeah, I always right, get that's angry. That's what I picked up. Yeah, I always get angry because of people yelling or fighting. And this is interesting, too. I think my mom might be in my... I think in my, my mom room, yes. might be in my room again. I wasn't there, so I don't know, but that was just eerie. Now, I do know that Kim told Chris he could not go into those girls' room. Any of the kids' rooms? Any of their rooms. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. 
And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I reached out again to Abigail's closest friend at the time of her death, Alexa, and shared the journal entry with her. Here are her thoughts. Yeah, after reading it, um, it seemed like she was kind of, I I don't know how to say it, like crying out for help a little bit, or she was in pain, but she was trying to figure out how to navigate through it while writing. It's like she was wise beyond her words or her years, like when she said, so why is why is this big thing so darn stinking small? It seems like it should be a seven or eight letter word, doesn't it? And then she started going into just reading, writing and being tired. And uh, it kind of opened my eyes to seeing like maybe there were problems or issues going on that she was not talking to everybody about. Maybe she wrote about or kept to herself. You know, it's interesting. I viewed it the same way. And I have to say, having now mothered adolescence, in addition to having been one at one point, I I do feel children are like mood rings. They very much manifest 
the dysfunction that they are around. And it's as if she couldn't articulate the real issue, the real problem, but she felt that there was one. Yes, I agree. And she was trying to get it out through her writing. Did you find anything odd? She does reference, I think my mom's in my room again. I, I was trying to decipher what that what that meant. It seemed like it was like, seems like she's been in my room going through my things or she's in my room. I, I couldn't I couldn't decipher between the two. That just struck out. I remember getting a little bit of a chill the first time I read that because it's it's what what does that mean? Exactly. Like what's what's really going on? And that that kind of made me think like what what did she mean by that? Did she mean she'd been going through things? Did she mean she'd, you know, been through her room straightening? I, I have no idea what that meant. But that made it sound like it had happened before. Yeah. And it when was she said again. Yeah, and that it was something that that wasn't a good thing necessarily. It was something that seemed like it was she was conflicted about it. Yeah, kind of like she had been, you know, going through her things. It kind of made me remember, like, a moment that we all had. I remember being, us all being in the car, going to one of Blake's games. And everyone was talkative and laughing and joking, all the kids and whatnot. And then both Mr. and Mrs. Vaughn got in the car and everything was just silent and it was tense. And it was like, you could hear a pin drop on the carpeting in the floor of the car. You know what I mean? Like the music was playing really, really low. You couldn't really hear it, but no one was talking. That's interesting. So their dynamic altered the atmosphere in the car. I I would say so. Like we were literally laughing, joking. I remember like um, Cassandra said something about Blake's socks or them being dirty and he never washes his, you know, just joke, you know, like playful banter with kids and us laughing. And then all of a sudden it was just like, we all are just quiet and silent, you know, sit up straight, don't say anything dumb. I remember just sitting in the car, it was a, like a switch almost, like a flip of a switch. At this point, Christopher Vaughn and I had been communicating regularly via email for about six months, and I was making progress into gleaning increasingly more insight into the complicated marital problems and dysfunctional dynamics he and Kim shared. During his trial, Something Vaughn had said during his initial interrogation, the day of the tragedy, was held against him, that divorce was not an option. Here's an excerpt from an email I sent him. Also, another question. I know much was made over the comment attributed to you that divorce was not an option. Would you expand on it? And what would it have meant to you? It resonated with me because it's actually something I've said many times to my husband of almost 24 years. I don't mean it or hear it as a threat, but more a principle. I'd be interested in your thoughts. That appears to have struck a chord with Chris. Here's his response. Lauren, I attempted to answer your question regarding my comment about divorce and quickly found I was unable to do it within the limits of the email character count. Context is really needed. I neglected to provide it then, and my comments were seriously misinterpreted. He then expressed he'd write in letter form and send it to my home address. 
That letter would never arrive. Instead, Chris went radio silent for more than two weeks. I worried that Chris was pulling back, knowing that COVID restrictions were easing and I'd soon be sitting with him in person. We were getting closer to the questions I'd planned to ask him from the first moment I'd learned about this case. Chris might not remember everything about the way in which his family died that day, but he sure as hell would have remembered planning it. I was going to ask Chris if he ever intended to kill his wife and children. Gail and I began to exchange concerned texts and emails. He'd gone radio silent with them, too, for more than two weeks. Have you heard from him? From Chris, yes, yes. Oh, thank goodness. I I was worried. So when did you hear from him? Uh, Let's see. Wednesday, yesterday, Wednesday. My my week is all confused now because he sent us a letter. And what he has in the letter is something we don't know how to handle. But I wished you to read it. It's five pages. Okay. And I, I'd like to send it to you some way and see how it impacts what we're doing. Me, it's all good. Okay. Remember how it'll be taken. Um, so, you know, probably the quickest way to do it would be to just take a picture of each page and text it to me. Okay, because once you read it, it, it's something I really can't explain over the phone. And, and you have to actually read it to it, take it in. And I, I don't know how people are going to respond to it. So it's like, oh my gosh. So I don't know what to do with it, to tell you the truth. Do you want to send it to me and I'll read it right away and call you back? Gail would first try to text images of the letter. They were too blurred to read. I waited, stomach knotted as she scanned and emailed them. After reading the letter, when I called Gail back, my fingers suddenly seemed too large for the keypad. Are are you there? Yes, yes, we are here. Okay, I I had to compose myself. Um, I know, I couldn't have read it to you. My next call was to Bill Clutter. Are you sitting down? Yes, I am sitting down. Okay, because you might lose your legs on this one. Um, I just got off the phone with Gail and Pierre. Uh-huh. I have been waiting to get a letter from Chris because I asked him to explain what he meant by the expression that divorce was not an option. I hadn't heard back. And Gail had reached out to me concerned because she hadn't heard back from Chris. On Wednesday, she received a five-page letter from Chris. He remembers that morning. Oh, my God. He remembers everything. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of 
Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After hearing nothing from Chris for two weeks, his parents finally received a letter. It was likely prompted by my question about the dynamics in his marriage leading up to the tragedy. Pierre agreed to read the letter Chris sent. Mom and Dad, when Lauren showed interest in my case, I truly thought she would go the way of the others before. She still seems intent on telling the story. I know I have not been forthcoming, approachable, or even cooperative in talking about what happened. My standard deflection to any question is that I do not remember. It has been easier not to talk about the kids and more specifically what Kim did. I have been really hopeful that I wouldn't need to talk about that morning ever again. I don't know why now should be any different. I don't know if it would be better just to leave everything as is. I don't believe anything will change my being locked up. 
I'm sure talking now will only get things stirred up for everyone, but I am also thinking that Lauren has already started that. You have been with me through all of this. I cannot even begin to express how truly grateful I am. If I am going to fill in the blanks, it will be for you first. Perhaps that will be enough, and it won't be of any real value to give Lauren this. Just leave it as is. I did not know how to or want to deal with what happened that morning, so I lied about not remembering how Kimberly shot my kids, then killed herself. This is what happened. We drove to the water park, as Kim and I had talked about the night before. Kim told me she felt sick. I pulled over and got out to give her a minute. When I was around the back of the truck, heading back towards my door, it sounded like the inside of the truck was exploding. I opened my door, saw the gun Kim was holding, and jumped in my seat to grab it. Kim fired at me. I fell back out the door, preparing to make another attempt. Kim looked at me and said, You will not take my kids. You killed them. She then turned a gun on herself and fired. I got back in to check the kids. Nothing can be done. I thought to drive the truck. Kim was slumped, so I tried to buckle her. My hand shook badly. I couldn't buckle the belt. I couldn't drive the truck. I got to the road to get help. I was and am deeply ashamed that I failed to protect the kids. I am ashamed that I drove Kim to do something so horrible. I am ashamed that had she not shot herself, I would have taken the gun and shot her myself. I did not want to deal with what happened. I was completely unequipped to do so. I did not want to discuss why Kim did what she did. I did not want to repeat what she said to me before she killed herself. So I lied, saying I did not remember. I was certain that the investigation would make clear what happened. How could it not? During the interrogation, I was back and forth between admitting my lie and continuing on. The more questions the police asked, the deeper I got and the harder it was to explain my lie. I told myself that it wasn't gonna, going to matter because the investigation itself would provide the truth. When I got a defense team, I believed they would piece it together. Any involvement from me would only hinder their efforts and show my lie. I was convinced that being caught lying would have me convicted without further consideration, regardless of the evidence. As I waited for the trial, I realized that it really did not matter that I had not fired a shot. 
I failed the kids. I drove Kim to do what she did. What she said was true. I was responsible. I would let the judge decide what my punishment would be. I am sorry for so many things. I have a lot of time to go back over a lifetime of mistakes. Some made little difference and others considerable. Saying that I did not remember the morning of the tragedy was a mistake and I am sorry. Not taking responsibility was a mistake and I am sorry. I hope that after waiting all this time to talk about it does not prove to be a mistake also. Love you both, Chris. Many things about this case stood out as odd to me from the very beginning, but the claims of dissociative amnesia were the hardest to accept. Not only was it the largest hurdle in trying to find the truth about that day, but something about its duration seemed off. When I spoke to neuroscientist James Fallon, he conveyed his opinion that even if Christopher Vaughn had initial gaps in his memory, the likelihood was they wouldn't have been permanent. Dissociative amnesia occurs in about 1% of people after trauma, but it's short-lived. And it's not very common in males, and it's temporary. The idea of this being a, some sort of long-lasting thing, I you know, in the literature in the past 10 years shows that this very rarely happens. The letter also called to mind something Chris's sister-in-law had shared. Rachel also mentioned that she thinks that Chris blamed himself for what happened and blamed himself for not protecting the kids. It was a major revelation. That letter provided insight into how Vaughn's blood could have gotten onto Kim's retracted seatbelt, his droplets on the passenger side, and how Kim's blood transferred to the back of his jacket. But it also raised questions as to what he remembered and when. So I wasn't sure how this would affect your podcast. Uh, no, it doesn't, because it, it, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done What I've said from the beginning was the only thing that could make this horrible tragedy more of a tragedy is if the person sitting in prison for the murders of the family didn't actually commit it. It is. And he's been punishing himself for the fact that he feels he drove her to it with his actions and that he didn't protect the kids. Yep, that's it. Yeah, I'm not sure how it. I mean, does it help us or does it hurt us because he lied? Pierre, what did you think when you read it? Um, well, kind of what we knew all along, but we just didn't know how it would get, get brought out. I just don't know what to do with it and, you know, what the public's reaction is going to be to it. Are they going to say, well, you, you lied then, or are you lying? Or did you make up the story and lie about it now? People are very cynical. Well, this is a huge development. Now, if you look at a man who had been through that horror and was internalizing that guilt and that shame, 
Of course he pushed away the pictures. Okay. This doesn't change anything. This makes it that much more important. I think that that's why he didn't want to get on the phone with me. I think he knew we were going to figure it out. And he had such a faith in the system that they would figure it out and this wouldn't have happened, him going to prison. And this is why he wanted to see me in person. Right. Having spent 14 years trying to piece together what happened in the Vaughn SUV, Bill Clutter seemed sincerely in shock as he tried to reconcile his knowledge of the crime scene with Vaughn's version of events. Yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. He got back in after she shot herself because he was going to drive the car to, like, get help. That's how her blood's all over yeah, all, all over the back of his, uh, his jacket. Opens the door. He's leaning in to get in. That's when she shoots. Yeah, I'm just trying to... So with this version, she shoots the kids first, and then... Well, he was in the back. When I was around the back of the truck, heading back towards my door, it sounded like the inside of the truck was exploding. I opened my door saw the gun Kim was holding, and jumped in the seat to grab it. Kim fired at me. Oh, okay, so he is in the car when when that's happening. I fell back out of the door, preparing to make another attempt. I got back in to check the kids. Nothing could be done. Mm-hmm. I thought to drive the truck. Kim was slumped, so I tried to buckle her. So she was slumped over the console. He tried to buckle her. So she took her belt off, and he tried to buckle it again. That explains the confusion over the blood transfer and his blood over her. My hand shook badly. I couldn't buckle the belt. I couldn't drive the truck. I got to the road to get help. Yeah. What do we do with this? Because if Chris is still in the mindset that he deserves to be punished, he might not even want to be... Helped. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first version that makes sense. For the first time in 14 years, Clutter had plausible explanation as to why and how Christopher Vaughn's blood got on the retracted safety belt of his dead wife, droplets on her side of the car, and how her blood was transferred onto the back right of the fleece he was wearing. A scenario of the tragic events of June 14, 2007, that could now be used to create a crime scene reconstruction that could possibly vindicate Christopher Vaughn. The reconstruction, while expensive and complicated, would be necessary. That letter, I don't know that that would succeed with any claim of actual innocence. You know, they would argue it's self-serving, which uh, is the, the big hurdle. What do you make of his use of the word lie in this letter? I don't know that lie is an accurate description of holding back the details of what he witnessed. It's more of an omission and not wanting to reveal that information. And that's what was motivating him, is not wanting to portray his wife as the killer of his children. And you think about it, I mean, it's completely consistent with a person who's 
actually innocent. If the state's theory was correct, that he stages this and is able to pull it off or he's able to line up the shots to make it look like she shot the children and his intent is to you know get, get away with murder, he would be blaming her once they give him that opportunity. And time after time after time, I can't see Kim doing this. I can't see her shooting the kids. I think that that expression is really telling, and the fact that he uses it constantly. I can't see her shooting me. I can't see her hurting the kids. I can't see her doing this. That is something I think he's struggling with in real time during that interrogation. Right, right. Absolutely. And I think he's still struggling with it. Right. Yeah, he needs he needs to be evaluated. Yeah, and it has to be someone that can do a forensic interview and to explain psychologically the unwillingness to be forthcoming. I mean, that's really a more accurate description is his unwillingness to be forthcoming with with the truth. Yeah, I think that First and foremost, we really need to test the version of events he presents in that letter. Right. But here's the thing. He has never admitted guilt, but he's also never shared what happened that day. This is the first time. And I think that it's because just the little bit of chipping away, I think he was convinced that I would just disappear like all the others who had expressed interest in telling the story. Mm-hmm. Well, now you got to get in to see him. That's... Yeah. The second, it's possible. I will. But who knows when that's going to be. Well, hopefully by May. If anything, though, I think that this is a huge breakthrough. Yeah, that, that it is. That letter offered insight that could be used to mount a post-conviction case that could possibly clear Christopher Vaughn. But that would also entail Chris going through another trial and possibly returning to Joliet and the Will County State's Attorney. That thought weighed heavily on us all. I mean, I don't think he's done um, feeling bad. I mean, I mean, I don't think he's going to quit that, but... He still doesn't think he's paid the price for it yet. I don't. I don't know if he'll go through an appeal. I. I, I don't know. Our initial optimism about that letter would be replaced by something else, as Chris again went silent before sending me this email. Lauren, I am sorry to have wasted your time. I am done with the podcast. I let my parents drag me into something I was not comfortable with, and something I did do not want to do. I've mentioned before that I do not believe it is remotely possible to get back into court. I am not willing to pay what it would take to try. With the outcome of the court being all but predetermined, I am not willing to go through another trial. My letter to my parents was very difficult. I want to make sure you understand this is in no way personal. I thank you for your compassion and your willingness to help. I wish you all the best. Chris. I cannot undo this. I'm just hoping for the right. You are not a frugal man. I'll never leave with empty hands. Steal we all dream aloud. 
On the next murder in Illinois, Chris's parents struggled to get him back on board. It's an incredibly difficult case. Having his cooperation is essential. And he gains a powerful supporter in the world of criminal justice reform. He didn't believe that he could be wrongfully convicted, which is why he didn't really mount a defense. And another in the realm of defense. I've tried over 500 murder jury cases. And I think it's a case that needs to be reevaluated. Murder in Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco and Taylor Shacoin. Written by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Matthew Riddle. Story editing by Matthew Riddle. Editing and sound design by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Cicada Rhythm, with new compositions engineered and mixed by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.